mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's guest is hospice nurse Penny. Many of you probably already know her from TikTok and Instagram. Penny Smith, BSN, RN, CHPN, is a nationally certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse. She has been a hospice nurse for 17 plus years and worked in a variety of care settings and roles within hospice, including inpatient home case management, education, quality, and regulatory. She currently works as a hospice quality manager for an organization in Washington state, operating three home hospice locations and an inpatient care center Penny is a passionate advocate for hospice education with a mission to normalize the end-of-life process, to remove the stigma and fear around hospice care, death, and dying. During the pandemic, Penny found her way to social media and discovered a unique way to utilize her death care expertise to provide education to a worldwide audience at a grassroots level. Using a variety of teaching styles, including TikTok trends, dark humor, dancing, and storytelling. And now on to my conversation with hospice nurse Penny. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder what the fuck just happened. I want to give a content warning for this episode. As you can tell, the guest is Nurse Penny, and she is a hospice nurse. So we do talk about some moments of dying and aspects of dying. Also, we touch upon death at different ages, including young people and children. We also touch upon sexual assault and sex offenders. So listen with care. And now on to my conversation with hospice nurse Penny. Hi, everyone. Today, I am speaking with hospice nurse Penny. Some of you might have seen her TikToks and Reels, and she speaks really openly about death, dying, and some really interesting phenomena she witnesses. So welcome, Nurse Penny. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So first of all, where are you able to say, where are you a hospice nurse? So I... I am a hospice nurse in Washington state, and I actually am a uh, quality manager now for a hospice agency. So I'm semi-retired because I'm getting old and uh, I don't do patient care anymore. I am a quality manager. So Medicare has very strict requirements for hospices to follow when it comes to quality. So we have a whole department that's dedicated to hospice quality. How did you decide to become a hospice nurse? I can imagine that's a career that would frighten a lot of people to take on. 
There were uh, several different motivating factors for me. I didn't go to nursing school until I was 40. And I had had an experience with a family member on hospice. I had kind of a rough past when I was in my 20s. And I, when I decided to become a nurse, I wanted to do something that I considered service work, just to kind of make up for not being such a stellar human being earlier in my life. Um, but because of the experience that I had had with the family member being on hospice about a year before I went to nursing school, I really felt like it was a job that probably not everybody could do. And if I could do it, that it would really be kind of giving back in a way to the universe. It's kind of a you know, like a selfish motivation, I guess. <laughs> I also had suffered from death anxiety. And so I kind of had a little morbid curiosity about death and dying. I had never seen anybody dead before I became a hospice nurse. And I wondered if going into a field where I was going to be exposed to death on the regular was going to help assuage my death anxiety. And in fact, it did. So there's several different pathways that led me to being a hospice nurse. And I actually, once I became a nurse, you can't really go into hospice right away. It's something that you really need to kind of get some experience under your belt before you're a hospice nurse. So I worked in a medical clinic for a year, and then I worked uh, on a med surge floor for a couple of months. And then after that, it's been hospice the whole way. So almost my whole nursing career has been dedicated to hospice. And I've done multiple different roles within hospice. So patient care in an inpatient unit, home hospice, regulatory education, and quality that I do now. That's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Very interesting and in-depth. And I can relate to death anxiety. I used to have it too until I started studying all I've been studying. A lot of people have it. I, I really feel like it's very, very common. And I didn't even know that until I got onto social media. And I think it's really, really normal and common for people to have death anxiety. But I've come to think the root of it is, is our bodies are programmed to fight to survive. So in our more intellectual, not running from tigers bodies, it kind of haywires a little, maybe? You know, that could be part of it. But also, we've really taken death out of our out of our view you know we've put it into hospitals and and we've kind of locked it away and people used to die in their own homes it was just a normal occurrence for grandma to die at home with their family taking care of her it happened all the time you know it the life expectancy a hundred years ago was so much shorter people you know child child death was very very common people had big families because they stood a risk of losing a couple kids along the way. It was just really common and normal. But with the advances of medical technology and being able to keep people alive for so long, I think that that kind of led us to, to believe that death is taboo. You know, it's a failure on the medical part. If somebody dies, it's hiding them in the hospital. And I really think that, you know, when COVID happened, all of a sudden death was in the forefront. You know, it became kind of a talked about topic again. And so those of us who are more death positive really jumped on the bandwagon to, to try to push the death positivity agenda. I mean, 100% of us die. Why do you think our society is so terrible about it? I know anyone who's had a loss, your friend group kind of disappears from you and just tries to tell you to cheer up and stays for me at least. And many people I've spoken to, they're in the background till you're fun again, or, you know, I'm using air quotes around that. People are uncomfortable with their own mortality. And if you are experiencing mortality through someone else's loss, it's, it's scary. It's hard. And it's hard to say the right thing. You know, it's just, we're just uncomfortable around it. It's, it's again, it just goes back to not wanting to acknowledge this thing that's going to happen, like you say, 100% of the time to 100% of us, uh, people just kind of have this idea that if they don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. So I just think people are uncomfortable being around others who have lost someone because they feel like, one, again, their own mortality is something at their forefront. 
and then they don't know how to to talk to somebody who has experienced a, a death of a, a loved one. Now, regarding death anxiety, as people are approaching the end of their lives, does death anxiety tend to remain for them? Is there usually some form of peace? You know, most people are afraid of dying, the actual dying more than the death part. And when I've asked patients, you know, if they were expressed that they were fearful, I would ask them, what are you afraid of? And it's the dying part. They don't know what the dying piece looks like for them. Is it going to be painful? Is it, is their family going to suffer? Are they going to suffer? Honestly, I have one one patient that I can recall in my many, many, many years of taking care of probably thousands of dying people who really had anxiety up until the very end. And he was a young man and he was alone and he was having some symptoms of breathlessness from his lung cancer. And really at the very end, he finally just kind of looked up at the ceiling and peace just washed over him and he died. And it was a very, very peaceful death at the very end. But by the time people are dying on hospice, they're ready. They're usually you know, at the end, not when they first come on, they might have, you know, a lot more fear about it and trepidation. But as people get closer to the end of their life, they're kind of like, okay, let's just do this thing. Let's get it over with. They know it's happening. You know, we, we know we're dying when we're dying and they get to a point of acceptance and it does make for a more peaceful death when they get it to that, to that point where they, they feel that acceptance. I've heard a lot about, and also this was happening to my dad. And unfortunately, I didn't know enough about it where I just started screaming, get the psychiatrist in. I couldn't face he was dying, but he was having conversations with his mother. My dad had me in his 50s. His mother was not living by the time I was in my late 20s. So have you noticed a lot of that? Oh, yeah, that's very, very common. Deathbed visions, which can occur weeks before a person is like literally on their quote deathbed, you know, which, which we kind of envision people being on their deathbed as somebody who's really at the end actively dying unresponsive in their bed. But people can have deathbed visions weeks before their death. And not only do they see deceased loved ones, but I've had patients who saw deceased pets. It's very common. It's very comforting. But oftentimes the reaction is similar to what you had by the family. And that is, can we give them some medication? They're hallucinating. You know, it's like uncomfortable to, to watch, you know, like, oh my gosh, you uh, immediately think something is wrong with your person when they're telling you grandma's in the room and you know, grandma's been dead for decades, but it is very, very comforting to the person who's dying. So yes, really, really common, really common. Does it make you think there actually is an afterlife and they're actually communicating with them? Yes, I do. So so back to my death anxiety, I was not raised with any religion at all. My parents were maybe agnostic or atheist. I don't even know because they never talked about religion in my household. I checked out different churches as a, a child and wasn't really interested in any of them. So no concept of afterlife, no belief in heaven or hell, which thankfully no belief in hell. So that kind of led to my death anxiety. Like what if there's just nothing after we die? It really, really worried me. But seeing people have these visions at the end of life convinced me that there has to, they see what they say they're seeing. And it's just this common thread. It's it's so like across the board with dying people, they're seeing their deceased relatives and pets. And so it, it's just like, it can't be a coincidence. So I firmly started to believe in something after this life in the first couple of years of my hospice experience, probably in the first few months of my hospice experience. But when my dad died, which was five years after I became a hospice nurse, he he actually came back to me after he died. And so that kind of was like, yep, okay, that's it. For sure, there is something more. I don't know what it is. I feel like it has something to do with energy because when my dad came to me, he was energy. He, it, he had no face. He was just this orange, warm energy and it was his voice and he spoke to me. And, you know, I just, and then my mom and my sister, they also had their own really different experiences with my dad coming back after he died. So I really do, I really do believe there is some, something beyond this. And, and I, I don't know what it is. 
I'm pretty sure it doesn't have anything to do with hell, though, or heaven. I just feel like it's not necessarily a place. I think it's more of a consciousness or an energy. And you know, if you think about it, nothing ever really goes away. We know that, you know, like chemically, everything is still here in a different form. And the offshoot of that transformation is often energy. So that's my, that's my belief. (laughs) I was raised exactly like you. So I get it. And I just assumed no doubt consciousness was created by a brain. So it's been transformative learning about this. You know, raised similarly, thinking there was no chance. Was there a pivotal experience at in hospice where you were just like, oh my God, this is the tipping point. There is something. This has happened too much or this one extreme time. Yes. So shortly after I became a hospice nurse and my first experience in hospice was working in a hospice care center. So this is where people go usually to have their acute symptom management needs met. And well, the the plan is always to get their symptoms managed and to send them back home, but they almost always die in the hospice care center because a lot of times when people have an exacerbation of symptoms, they're close to the end of life. So we had a patient who was a nun. I'm sorry, she wasn't a nun. Her daughter was a nun. She was an elderly woman and her daughter was a nun. And there were many, many nuns who were coming to see her at the care center. And uh, one evening, the last visitor left her room and came out to the nurse's station and she was a nun. And she said to me, she's gone. And I stood up and I grabbed my stethoscope and I said, oh, and she said, no, no, her body is still here doing the work of dying, but her spirit has left. You can see it in her eyes. So as soon as she left, I walked into the room and I looked at the person, the lady, and sure enough, I could see that her eyes were open, but she had what we now I know as the death stare. Like she couldn't, she wasn't focusing on anything. They were just kind of glazed over, gazing off into the distance at nothing. And it just really impacted me hard. Like, wow, she is right. And since then, I had seen many, many times where you get this feeling like a person who is transitioning towards actively dying. They're kind of like here and then they're somewhere else and then they're here and then they're somewhere else. And then they do get to a point where it's like they've left their body and the body's still working, but they're not in there anymore. They're just gone out of there. So that that was really impactful for me that being a new nurse with no experience around death at all and and having had death anxiety, it was very, very impactful. I don't know if this would even happen in hospice, but have you ever had anyone who had a near-death experience where they died, came back? I'm assuming then they would end up ultimately passing away since they're in hospice, but... No, yeah, I haven't ever had any... When when they come to us, they're terminally ill, so we don't have anything like that. Oh, wait, I got to tell you something. I, I just thought of something. So we did have a patient who came to us, a man who had had a stroke... And this is the closest thing to an NDE that I would say happened. He was dying when he came to us. We were pretty sure that he was dying. And all of a sudden, one day, the family said, you know, he's starting to wake up and he wants to eat. And I said, oh, well, go ahead and give him something to eat. A few days later, he was walking the halls and he looked fantastic. And he said... He remembered the doctor in the emergency room tapping him on the forehead and saying, this one's going to die. It wasn't near death because he didn't die. So I guess you'd call that a near death experience. But, But anyway, so his consciousness was still there as people were thinking he's going to die and he could remember what happened in that emergency room. So I thought that was kind of, that's the closest thing I've seen to to an NDE because our patients all end up dying. I think that still adds to consciousness, us perceiving information outside of our traditional normal senses, you know, which really, that's all that's needed for evidence of survival. Yeah. I guess technically you could say that all of the patients I've seen have deathbed visions were having NDEs, near-death experiences, because they were near, near death. I think a lot of times I think of NDEs as people who died and then came back and talk about what they saw when that's what I always associate. But in, in reality, an, a, an NDE would be 
uh, a person who is terminally ill, dying and seeing deathbed visions. So yeah, I guess I've seen a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess I read about one, and this is only one, it was a historic journal, like scientific paper. I, I forget where, so I'm sorry to everyone. I can't give the source, but someone who did die, they had an NDE, came back for about an hour and then passed officially. Have you ever seen one very evidential, like where someone's having deathbed visions of someone they didn't know was deceased? I have not seen that. Oh, I have. Well, I've seen where the family didn't know. So a patient who was talking about a baby girl and the family was puzzled and said, we don't know of any baby girls that died. And her sister was there and her sister said, actually, she had a baby girl and she died when she was younger, before she ever got married. So that was interesting. But nobody that's ever said somebody's dead and then later on the family's like, we just found out that so-and-so died. You know, I've never had anybody that said that. What about terminal lucidity? Have you seen quite a bit of that? Yes, I've seen quite a bit of terminal lucidity. You know, interestingly, terminal lucidity, that name, that that definition is new. It's new in the past few years. We always called it the rally and some people call it the surge. And I've seen that a lot where somebody, I've seen it where people were so close to the end of, you know, like you think they're going to die pretty soon in a couple days and then they wake up and they have a burst of energy and they want to eat and they want to talk I had somebody that sent me a message recently who said that their mom woke up and she wanted to play bridge and they played a game of bridge with her. So yeah, and and it can happen with dementia patients and it's a little different for dementia patients where they actually have an awareness of their family. They remember things. I had a patient who had grown up in Germany, but spoke English. And then during her terminal lucidity, she actually started speaking in German again and the family had never heard her speaking in German. She hadn't spoke it since she was a child. So her memory really came back to her. And the interesting thing, of course, people think "Ah, they're getting better. They can come off hospice. They're not dying anymore. But in reality, it means that they're actually close to death. Most people have about a you know, 24 hours or less of terminal lucidity, and then they usually die within a week or so, sometimes the same day. And we don't know what causes it. There's theories around what causes it, that it may have something to do with organ breakdown and hormones being excreted, which makes a lot of sense because steroids are hormones. And when you give somebody steroids, it perks them up. So so that could possibly be the cause of it. But, you know, there's so many things in hospice where I'm like, I don't really care what causes it. I just think, can we just let it be a mystery? Do we really have to solve for everything that happens? It's okay. It's just a gift. But we do have to manage people's expectations when that happens and let them know that you know, this is probably not going to last. They usually die soon after this happens. And it happens often. In about four out of 10 people, it'll happen. And I assume that would be hard for people because they get their hopes up. I know my dad had not exact lucidity because he wasn't in hospice yet. But one day when he was Absolutely. I mean, just no longer present. He just had this great day. And I said, oh, he's better or he's going to go back to rehab. We had a whole conversation. And, you know, obviously I'm on the, I made this podcast. It didn't happen. So but it was definitely a lot of false hopes. I would think that as a nurse, you have to help people manage their false hopes in those situations. Definitely. And conversely, I usually did not bring it up in my practice unless I saw that it was happening because people will get false hope if they know about it and it doesn't happen. They think they're going to get that last day and and they don't. So I usually would not bring it up unless I started to see, oh, this looks like, and sometimes it's almost when it happens, unless they were really, really down for the count, sometimes you kind of wonder while it's happening, is this what's happening? And then in retrospect, when you look back, you're like, yep, they died. That was it. And then there's also... I think there's something different that I would call the last good day where somebody, they are terminally ill, but they're not as close to the end of life. And then they have kind of a good day. That happened with my dad where he was sick. He was in the hospital. And then one day he had a great day and looked good. And then he actually died a few days later after that. So it was not profound because he wasn't like really down dying. It, It was, I guess, probably... Technically, it was like terminal lucidity, but 
he wasn't uh, as unresponsive or down for the count when it happened. It was just a great day that he had. I guess that was more what happened with my dad than terminal lucidity. It was suddenly like instead of my coming in and he was talking to his mother or told me that our cat who'd passed was with him that morning. He was talking to me completely present and, you know, this might be a slightly weird question. I know you said your dad visited you after he passed. Have you ever had any of your patients visit in any way later? No. And I don't think that's a weird question. People ask me that often, but uh, you know, no, I haven't, but but why would they? I was just their nurse. You know, really, I was only there for a small part of their life. Most people don't live longer than the six months of life expectancy that we require for hospice. I've had patients that, with dementia that lived, you know, for years, but most of my patients usually died within six months. But I I would not expect them to visit me. I'm I'm no one. I mean, I'm important to them in that part of their life. Definitely. I've had people that said, oh, you know, I'm going to be there to meet you after you die. You know, I've had people tell me that. But in the whole scheme of things, they have a whole lifetime of people who are way more important to them than I am. So it it's not something I would expect for them to be coming in. You know, they might be there when I go someday, but <laughs> but they, they haven't come to me. When someone's on hospice, I would imagine joyful when I think of years Hopefully, you know, never know, but I imagine years down the line when I'm on hospice or assuming I'm on hospice, obviously some people go instantly, but the idea of seeing my dad again, I'm assuming at that point, my mom, you know, who knows, obviously there'll be other people. Do they just start radiating joy? They're suddenly talking to these people they haven't seen in forever. What, what is that like to watch people? You know, sometimes I think people are caught off guard by it. I've had people who didn't want to talk about it because they felt like, I think they were, one lady in particular thought I would think she was crazy, even though I asked about it, because it is a symptom that I ask about to know where people are in their trajectory towards death, because we like to keep, you know, apprised of where they're at with things. And so it was a question I would typically ask. But yes, okay, so I have seen people who were just ecstatic that they were seeing their person. A man whose wife had died a year before him was crying. He could see her and he was, for one thing, it's like, I think when they first start seeing people, it's a little disbelief for them. And then, you know, the the, the responses are 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 widely varied. I, I can think of several situations. One guy is crying, he sees his wife and he's saying, she's coming to get me. And he was crying and that was beautiful and amazing. And then there was a woman who was like asking me if I had any hospice literature to give her about, you know, what to expect. And I said, oh, you mean like a book that talks about things that happen? And she said, yes. And I said, oh, okay. Usually it's the family that wants that information, but this patient wanted it. And I gave her the book and I went in later and she started pointing at the book and she said, this right here, this right here. She said, I think I'm going to die soon because it says right here that you start to see people who have died before you. And my husband came to visit me. So she was kind of more like matter of fact about, ah, okay, this is what's happening. So it's really different for a lot of people. And sometimes it's it's very matter of fact. It's just like, oh, you know, they're talking. You know, there's, again, it can happen during this time frame of weeks before their death to right before their death. And it depends on how conversant they are, how, how they're able to communicate. Sometimes they're just pointing up. Sometimes they're pointing up and saying names. And the family's like, what are they talking about? Oh, she's talking about her aunt pointing up at the up at the air. So it's it's just different, you know. And then I also think, so another thing that happens when people are dying is uh, they reach, reach towards the ceiling, reach up to the corner. And I think that might have something to do with seeing those um, deceased loved ones and not c- being able to communicate that that's what they're seeing, but that they're reaching for them. And I know... There's that famous Steve Jobs line of the, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, as he died, just filled with joy. This might be too specific for you to ethically share, but is there just a moment that you can share along those lines where you saw something and were like, that was so beautiful? I'm sure I've had those moments, but off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. But also, you know, with it's interesting because the thing with Steve Jobs was very really cool that that happened. A lot of people think 
that somebody is going to have last words and then die right away. And it doesn't normally happen like that. People usually will slip into a state of unresponsiveness and then they slip away. It's rare that people will say, and I don't know, maybe Steve Jobs was alive for a while after that, but I always thought it was like, those were his last words just before he died. He said, oh, wow, oh, wow. And it's totally possible that happened. My dad did the same thing. He told the nurse, I'm about ready to hang it up. And then he died. And it's very, it's not common for that to happen. Most people don't die that way. But, you know, there's been a few that I know of who were like, okay, I'm ready to go now. And then they died. But I can't think of any who were saying, you know, like, oh, I see the pearly gates or (laughs) anything like that. Right. I mean, I think seeing their loved ones, I'm much more excited. I mean, I don't believe in God or heaven. I'm just going to be thrilled to see my loved ones. I think it's going to be joyous. I agree. I I don't look forward to dying. I'm death positive, but that doesn't mean I'm in any hurry to get out of here. But I'm not afraid of it. And I do look forward to, you know, being able to see those who have died before me. I guess, you know, the guy that I was talking about earlier, he was not able to express, oh, wow, oh, wow. But he saw something. And, you know, like the one who was looking at who died after just was so anxious and then looked up and then died. There was something you could just see it in his eyes. He just had this look of like peace that washed over him. That was that was really one of my most profound experiences at the bedside as a hospice nurse. And and I remember, you know, I was holding his hand. I had given him medication and it was evident that there was just no medication that was going to help. You know, existential suffering is something you can't treat with medication unless you sedate people. And the aide was across from me on the other side and she was holding his hand and we were both holding his hands. And when he died like that, I looked at her and I said, have you ever seen anything like that? And she she just was wide-eyed and said, no, have you? And I was like, no. I mean, it was it was incredible. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Hi, can I ask all of you listening a favor that would be so helpful? Would you mind rating and reviewing this podcast on whatever app you're listening? Even just clicking the star button to rate would be so helpful. With lesser-known podcasts, ratings make a huge difference in the algorithm and whether new listeners can even find this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. These deathbed visions of loved ones, I've certainly had dreams of my dad. They seem much stronger than dreams, right? Oh, yeah. And dreams of your of, of your person who has died is often them visiting. It's interesting. There's psychic mediums on, on TikTok who talk about how to know, like if a dream, when they come to you and they have like this list of things, like it's specific, you know, you, you hear their voice, it's their voice, all these things. And it was validating to see that, to see a video about that and to go, yeah, okay, it really was my dad. It was validating But at the time, there was no question in my mind. I've never questioned it. And I even hate saying I was asleep when he came to me because I don't want people to say, you were just dreaming, because it really was not a dream. 
there was just, it's no, no question about it. It was my dad. He came to me a hundred percent. I knew that when it happened, you just know when they do that. And for my sister, she was uh, awake and meditating when it happened to her. And it was a, like I said, a different scenario. Her daughter at the time was unfortunately in the throes of drug addiction. She's now clean and sober for seven or eight years. But my sister was going through a very, very hard time trying to decide how to deal with it. And and she started uh, with the help of her husband learning how to meditate. And my dad would come to her and give her advice. And then with my mom, she she was not willing to concede that there could be an afterlife for a very long time. And she kept saying to me, I keep having these little wisps. And I said, what do you mean by wisps? And she said, well, like this little wisp. And then I hear dad's voice and it's like, be careful. And it sounds like him. And and finally, one day I said, mom, you keep saying you don't believe in an afterlife, but you're describing dad. He's coming to you. And she finally said, yeah, I guess, I guess he is. You know, it was really funny, but it didn't happen for years after his death. And then my brother is an atheist and he's never had or admitted to having any kind of experience like that. And, and I also think, you know, for me, it happened right away. Like within a week of my dad's death, it happened. And the rest of my family who believes that there might be something was like, well, why hasn't he come to me yet? And I said, you know, I, I've been a hospice nurse for five years. I'm very comfortable around death. I believe in an afterlife. I think I'm just more open to receiving it. So I always just think, well, my brother is an atheist. So he firmly 100% believes there is nothing after this. Like this, the lights are out, you're done. And so I just don't think he's open to that. I think you do have to be open to it a little bit. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I was atheist. I'm still actually atheist in the sense I don't think of a traditional heaven or God, but things started to happen as I started reading the science of afterlife. That's when all the weird stuff started to happen. Now we were talking about seeing deceased loved ones and in general, people happy to see them. I mean, not everyone had good relationships with their parents. And I know some people I've seen post, I'm terrified I'm going to see, for example, my abusive father or ex-husband. I've never had anybody say that they saw someone that they were afraid of or had a bad relationship with, ever. I've had people who were seeing shadows and weren't sure who they were at first, but it was nothing that caused them any fear at all. I've I've never had anybody who saw visions of a deceased person or animal that was fearful for them. I've had patients who had side effects from medications who literally hallucinated and were seeing wackadoo things, you know, like a unicorn on the roof or spiders coming out of the ceiling, but that's something entirely different. When it comes to deathbed visions, I've I have not ever had anybody who told me, oh my God, my dad who sexually assaulted me is in the room. You know, that just has never happened in, in my experience, nor with any of my hospice colleagues who I've talked with about deathbed visions. I'm sure there are people who'll be relieved to hear that. You also touched upon hallucinations. How are you able to tell the difference? So again, you know, it, with the visioning, it's it's something that brings them peace and comfort. It's somebody that has died. It's a pet that died. And with hallucinations, it's usually something more abstract. It's it's not comforting to them at all. They're usually agitated. They're not usually as coherent if they're hallucinating. Whereas with deathbed visions, if they're able to communicate, you can tell they're not like incoherent. They're not delusional with people that are hallucinating. Usually there's a little bit of incoherence to that. And then we usually just try to figure out what is causing that. And we we can either stop if it's a medication, we'll stop the medication, or if it's a medication causing it or something that we can give them to, you know, we either stop the medication or we give them a medication that will stop it, which is usually haloperidol. That works really well for that. Okay, And now I know we have people who've had all different losses listening to this, including, unfortunately, some children. And is there a difference when you have, you know, say, an elderly person on hospice versus someone young? I mean, and young on hospice can be 30s, 40s, as well as 10. 50s, 60. I'm 61. So yeah, 60s, very, very young. You mean in terms of visioning or just in general? 
in general, I guess I don't know specifically how to ask this because I can't imagine what differences there would be. So what differences come to your mind? Well, people who are younger are more, more prone to terminal agitation, which is usually caused by existential suffering. They don't want to leave. They have young kids or they themselves are young. And so they're more prone to terminal agitation, like the more of the resistance to, to dying. They also tend to linger a little bit longer, which can cause the family to suffer because they feel like lingering is suffering, which it's not. Um, but like they can be in that unresponsive state of actively dying for longer. Although I've seen people who were very old do the same thing. I've seen people who were very old have, and I'm talking like 90 and above, terminal agitation or lingering. And I always say, well, you know, you get to a point where you've lived that long, you know, one, you have a lot of determination to be able to live that long. And two, you probably think you're never going to die when you get that old. So sometimes they will have more of a, a little bit of terminal agitation. I haven't cared for a lot of young patients. My, I saw a five-year-old once as I was floating on the weekend. My youngest patient was 20 years old and I've taken care of many, many, many 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40, all the way up. So I've had lots of younger patients. But interestingly, if, if you want to know about deathbed visions, I did see a study that was done by a hospice doctor, and he said that most children actually see animals. They don't have as many people who have died before them to draw from. So so it's often pets, uh, but I do have a friend, a colleague who is a pediatric hospice nurse, and she said she had a patient who was a young girl whose grandfather had died, and she was visioning her deceased grandfather at the end of life. So they vision as well. Have you ever heard anyone report, these would be the families of the hospice patients, shared death experiences? Do you know about William Peters' work with that or any of those? I don't know about his work with it, but I know that I had a shared death experience with my dad. He was, my dad was a collector of many different things and he collected hats and I was staying at my parents' house when he was in the hospital and the hospital bed was downstairs and above the bed was a beam where all of his hats were hanging up. And we went home from the hospital with a plan to take him home the next day on hospice and I was going to care for him. And I was laying in the hospital bed, looking up at the hats hanging up there. And I, I kept thinking to myself, wow, look at all those hats hanging up there. Look at those hats. There's so many hats hanging up there. And then the phone rang and the nurse said, you need to come. And I said, oh, okay. And I hung up the phone, got my mom, got my brother. We went to the hospital. By the time we got there, he had died. And she said, do you want to know how it went? And I said, yes. And she said that she went in there to see him and he said to her, I'm about ready to hang it up. And then she went and got him some out of van and came back and he was in agonal breaths and dying. So I, I think that when I was looking at those hats hanging up there, he was telling the nurse, I'm about ready to hang it up. So the timing was exactly as it, as it was. He was still alive when she called and, and then he died. She actually called we were in the car driving and she called and told me that he had died. And, and then when I got there, she told me the story. So the timing was exactly perfect. And, you know, I have to, I have to reflect back on something. You talked about people like the, oh, wow, oh, wow, Steve Jobs thing. I did have a patient who she came onto service and it was a weekend and she was very sick. She, she had come out of the hospital and I had to spend a, a lot of time with her and her daughter doing all kinds of medical stuff to, to help get her comfortable. And she ended up dying on Sunday evening. And then on Monday, the daughter called me and she said, I, I need to tell you about what happened because it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And she said that her mom was talking about holding her hands up in front of her and, and pointing and saying there's windows. Like she was holding her hands up and going, there's this and talking about these windows where they were parts of her life that she was reliving. And then she said to her daughter, she held up her hands in front of her face and she said, well, I need these. And her daughter said, your hands? And she said, yes. And she said, no, I don't think you're going to need those. And then she said she touched her gown and she said, well, I need this. And her daughter said, 
your gown? And she said, no, this. And then it was evident that she was actually touching her chest. And her daughter said, no, I don't think you're going to need that. She was talking about her body. So that was kind of a, a cool thing. That is, that's, yeah, it's just kind of all these little magical moments that I think we don't get to see in the average life, you know, as you were saying, and we all notice that's so tucked away. I think if we had all this integrated, we'd have a very different existential experience as humans. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been the biggest surprise of your job? My biggest surprise was really learning that people mostly die the same way when they die a natural death. I guess, and it was a surprise to me because I had never considered how people die, but that there are all of these common things that can happen when a person is dying, both physically and psychologically. And and that was a big surprise too, as far as kind of the unexplainable, paranormal, if you will, type things that can happen or just the unexplainable visioning and the reaching and the doing things with their hands that make me think people are doing life review and the, the the sense that they're here and then they're there and terminal lucidity, like these kind of things that happen that are just so common and normal in dying people. I just wasn't really expecting that. Have you ever had anyone give any weird deathbed confessions? I have not. You know, I, I would think that would be reserved for the chaplain. It's not something I think people would talk to a nurse about necessarily. If they had, it was probably not something that I felt like I needed to hang on to. So it's possible somebody might have said something to me along the way and I just never retained it because it's not something that is I need to keep. You know what I mean? If somebody's telling me something that's their confession of something that they did, it doesn't feel, it feels like that would be something they'd want to get off their chest, but it's not something that I need to hold for them, if that makes sense. So, I mean, I've, again, I've, I've been a hospice nurse for 19 years and I've done, you know, I've, I've literally cared for thousands of people, thousands working in a hospice care center for seven years. That's a lot of people <laughs> dying. And so there are things along the way that have happened that I don't remember, and there's things that I do. And I think probably if I heard any confessions, it's not something I would have kept. Are there a lot of w any special wisdoms you've gotten from people? I imagine people in their terminal states are maybe at the most wise humans ever are. Well, it's usually this, you know, don't work too much, spend more time with your family, that type of thing. But interestingly, whenever I've had people who were over 100 years old, I would ask them what their secret to long life was. And more often than not, the answer was stretching, like stretching your muscles. Literal stretching. Okay. Stretching. I'm going to get on yep. that and make my family get on that. So Yeah. I've, ha I've had more, more than one patient. I have several patients who were over 100 who told me that that was the key to their long life was stretching. Like, okay. Keep the muscles limber. What do you think's the biggest misconceptions our society has about both death and grief? Well, I think a big misconception about grief is that it will end, that you can get over it or work through it. And grief is not linear and it never goes away. We just learn to live with it. Or that there is some specific way that you have to grieve. Like if you're not crying, you're not grieving. Grief is different for everybody. It's individual as the person is, you know, so it's going to be different for everybody. And as far as death, I think a big misconception is that death is painful. And certainly things that people die from can be painful, cancer especially, but sometimes people die with no pain. There's, there's no pain at all. Our bodies know how to die just as much as we know how to be born. And we go through a dying process that's systematic shutdown. And, you know, if, if you're dying a natural death, if you don't die a sudden death or a traumatic death, your body will go through this process, a dying process. And it's not necessarily painful. There's a lot of these Silicon Valley tech people who think they might find a way to live forever with just the right technology. What are your thoughts on that? No, right? What would the point be? I mean, like we're over we're overpopulated already. And then also, 
we don't know what happens after this. And maybe there really is a, a meaning and a purpose for death other than for our bodies to stop living. Maybe there is a next level that we're supposed to achieve. Why would we try to stop this natural process? You know, I think it's dumb. I don't think it'll ever happen. You know, I mean, how? Unless you're on artificial life support, you know, like we can keep people alive for a long time on, on life support, but eventually even people who are on life support are going to die. And, and that's not really living anyway. I wonder if those people, as you spoke with about the daughter who was the nun, are they even in their bodies? Yeah. Maybe their bodies on machines are doing all the symptoms while they've gone to the other side, whatever that means. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Now, taking care of yourself, do you feel you carry a lot of sadness? How do you manage being around you know, grieving families all the time and breaking the news? It's not sad work to be a hospice nurse. It's not sad work to work in hospice at all. It's very rewarding. It's a gift to be able to experience the end of somebody's journey with them. It's a gift, especially if you're able to bring them comfort and to help their family to not be so afraid of what they see. They're always going to be sad, but they don't have to be scared. If we normalize everything that's happening for them and educate them, the expectation for a hospice patient is death. That is the outcome that we expect. And if we've done all that we could to make sure that the experience was as good as it could be, then death is a job well done. So not sad. Are there a lot of families? And I was very much this way with my dad. I was in complete denial. I mean, even when he was going to hospice, I was like, well, we can try this and we can. I just could not process it. And I was like, we're going to try everything. Why don't we do this? And, you know, it would have been a very different experience for me and probably for him, if I could have gone with it. Are there a lot of families like that? Yeah, there are. There are a lot. Even when the person themselves resigned to going on hospice and dying and stopping treatment, families will not want to give up hope. They just want to continue to try to do everything. And again, that goes back to what do you mean there's nothing more that can be done? Medical technology is so advanced. We can, you know, you can treat anything. You can, you know, it's it's just hard for people to let go of their person. They don't they don't want to let go of their person. And understandably, you know, I know with my dad, you know, I uh, there are people who are okay with it and they accept it. That's how I was with my dad. I'm a hospice nurse. I kept saying to the doctors, I'm a hospice nurse. Be real with me. What's happening? This doesn't look good. Oh, no, no. He'll be fine. And that's the other part of it. We have physicians and other providers who are reticent to talk about the fact that the person's going to die. They don't want to stop trying to keep them alive because that's what they're taught in medical school. They're taught that death is a failure and we need to keep people alive. So you have a family who already doesn't want to lose their dying person and you have providers who want to try to do everything to make sure that that doesn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, my mom was the decider with my dad. But when we were given the chance to try to fight, which would have been horrible, would have been like years of him on this life support, you know, who knows what I was fighting for that. And my mom was like, absolutely not. The other option was to take him off and move him to hospice. And I mean, I'm glad I wasn't the cider because for all I know, he could have been five years, 10 years, not a human, you know, just on machines while I was hoping for the miracle, you know, and so. People don't consider quality of life and that just because a person is alive doesn't mean that they're living. What would you say is the most satisfying aspect of your career? Uh, I would just say, you know, the most satisfying is is when you can get somebody to a place of comfortability with their person dying and when they can see the experience as being beautiful instead of horrible and tragic. I think that's the most satisfying thing to be able to help people not be so afraid so many times when I've been with a family of somebody who was really afraid of what they were seeing with their dying person, and I was able to explain to them that all that they were seeing was very normal, their relief was palpable. And that to me was very, very satisfying to know that they, I had reached them to explain to them that their person wasn't suffering, it was all normal, and, and they were okay with that dying process. 
What would you say is the biggest what the fuck you've seen as a hospice nurse? The biggest what the fuck I've seen is a person who was a sex offender who came over to the care center from a prison for sex offenders with a guard at the bedside. He was unresponsive and actively dying. And I said to the guard, wow, he must have done something really bad for you to have to be here because obviously this guy's not going anywhere. And he said, oh, you don't even want to know what he did. And you know how I've talked about how people get that look where their bo- their spirit is gone and their body's doing the work of the dying. He never got that ever from the, to the moment he took his last breath, it looked like in his eyes, he was in there. And that was like a real, you know, like, wow, what's happening there? Does he have to stay in that body for a while because he did bad things? You know, that, that was definitely a, what the fuck was that? And how was that for you caring for a person who was so cruel, you know? Well, you know, I, I remember thinking when the guard said that to me, you know what, I, he's probably right. I don't want to know because it's my job as a hospice nurse to do my absolute best to make sure that this person doesn't suffer. I don't know what he did. I don't want to know what he did. He's my patient and I'm going to care for him. So you just have to, you, you, you just bring compassion to the table with every single person, regardless of what their past history was, because that's just my job to do. Have you ever had but someone who's done bad things? Have you watched amends that people might have made through the dying process? People don't really change that much. I mean, they can be sorry at the end, but, you know, it's not like they change that. People who are assholes in life are going to be assholes when they're dying. They just are. And I've seen that many, many times. It's not like all of a sudden they're nice now because they're dying. They're just the same as they've ever been. And the movies show a very opposite perspective of that. Yeah, like, oh, it's an epiphany. I'm going to be nice to everybody from now on because I'll only have to do it for a short time and then I'll be dead. No, people really don't. I I haven't really seen. I mean, it's not to say it never happens. It, It probably does. But I haven't really seen. I've seen a lot of people who were just jerks and in their and they still were at the end and they weren't willing to say they were sorry. And that's why I always say that, you know, if you're a family member and your person who's dying treated you poorly and you had a bad relationship with them, you are not obligated to go see them just because they're dying. You do not have to go see them to forgive them. If you want to forgive them, you don't have to go see them to do that. And if you don't want to forgive them, that's okay too. You don't have to go and be with somebody just because they're dying. Dying does not absolve you of your toxicity. That's, I guess, another big misconception that the media makes us think about dying, that everyone has this deep personal growth. What advice or what would you say to someone who is recently facing a terminal diagnosis? Definitely. My my advice is to make sure that you always ask for all of the options when talking with the provider, because there's always another one. If somebody tells you there's only one pathway, that's not true. Make sure that you know all of the possible options, because so many times, you know, especially with cancer diagnoses, oncologists want to do treatment and they don't want to talk about the other possible options for a person. And that could be hospice or it could be palliative care which will allow for that treatment to happen concurrently with also a focus on symptom management. I think too many times I've seen patients who felt like their only choice was treatment and it's never their only choice, never. There's always a possibility to choose not to treat and to go into hospice. And many times that's the right pathway to take because that treatment can greatly reduce quality of life and doesn't necessarily extend it. You might go through treatment for your cancer and have a shitty quality of life and still die in three months as you would have anyway without the treatment, but you could have had a better quality of life. Right. How do you feel being a hospice nurse has changed you or made you who you are today? Well, again, you know, I had this feeling of needing to do the service work. And that that really has helped me to feel like a better person to do this kind of work, more capable, more compassionate, and then also has really helped with the death anxiety. 
and my desire to help other people to not have to suffer from death anxiety. Hi, I'm interrupting the podcast episode for this week's listener question. So this week, Brittany asked, are the famous mediums and the mediums that all the celebrities love really that much better than all the others? So I think it really makes no difference in terms of mediums who have celebrity clients and testimonials from them. It really matters what the scientists and researchers say, not so much what celebrities would say. The scientists are really experts in studying psychic medium abilities, and so they know how to test to assure mediums are not cheating or giving cold readings or just giving general information. You know, just because someone is an expert at entertainment or really amazing in the public eye does not necessarily mean they are good at critically assessing psychic mediums. You know, maybe they're super gullible and believey about that kind of thing. But, you know, I don't think it says anything negative about a medium either. Some of the best mediums I've ever seen do have a very public, well-known clientele. But those ones are also certified by Forever Family Foundation or Winbridge and have been studied by scientists at universities. Some of the best I've also seen are very low-key. I also did go to one who had a lot of celebrity testimonials, and this was early on in my research, and I was actually curious about testing this exact question. And to be honest, this was one of the worst readings I've ever had. Just so you know, she was not certified by Winbridge or Forever Family Foundation, but she didn't get one bit of evidential information. And she seemed really annoyed and uncomfortable with me that I kept only saying yes or no and not giving, well, actually really just no. I don't think there was any yeses. And she really seemed like she was trying to get me to give her information. She finally just asked what I want to even get out of this reading. And I said, valid evidence that we survive bodily death. So then she said my dad was now telling her to tell me I needed to learn to trust and that I'm way too suspicious. Of course, I'd had to tell her that I lost my dad. And I mean, that reading's a whole other story. I'll probably talk about it at some point on this podcast. So back to the question, in terms of mediums also who are famous themselves, I don't know. The few I know who are in the public eye or used to be that I know personally and have watched work, or maybe I don't know them, but I had a private reading with them. Those were all ones who were also studied by scientists or certified by Forever Family. They were all amazing, and they've been among the best I've seen. But, you know, some of the ones that are famous themselves apparently aren't. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a skeptic called Susan Gerbic or Jerbic. I'm sorry for pronouncing her name wrong, but it's spelled G-E-R-B-I-C. And she's not a researcher officially. I mean, she thinks all psychic medium abilities are nonsense. But, you know, I'd be so curious for her to go have a reading with one of the ones that have really impressed me and see what would happen. Who knows? But back to her, she did a sting of a famous medium. Again, I'm just going to say not certified by Forever Family Foundation or Wimbridge. But so back to this, she did a sting and she caught him cheating. I won't name him because I'm not going to name and shame, but if you're really interested, you can Google it. So if she had tried those same tactics on the famous mediums that I know, I know it wouldn't work because they're not cheating that way. And so I guess my point is overall, I think fame or being lauded by celebrities is completely irrelevant in terms of medium's capabilities. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. 
I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. So will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually, and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already, and they were really special. Fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Where can our listeners find you, follow you? Any messages, closing messages for them you'd like to leave? So I am on all of the social media platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. My username is at Hospice Nurse Penny on all of them. And I would just say um, that people should definitely be more curious uh, about learning about death and dying. It's going to happen to us all. None of us is, none of us get out of here alive. And the more you know, the more comfortable you'll be with it. And it will not make you die any faster to learn more about it. Great. Thank you so much. It's really been wonderful speaking with you. Thanks for having me on. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, what the fuck just happened? A sciencey skeptic explores grief, healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.